0: That brings us to chapter 6, which we come to another kind of a vow. The emphasis on vows right here. This is the Nazarite vow. Now, don't confuse Nazarite with Nazareth or Nazarene. They have nothing to do with each other. The city of Nazareth won't even exist for another 1,000, 2,000 years history. This is a Nazarite. It's just totally coincidental. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them when either a man or a woman takes a special vow, to take a vow as a Nazarite, to separate himself to Yahweh. He must separate himself from wine and strong drink. He must drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from strong drink. Nor may he drink any juice of grapes, nor must he eat any grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he must not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine. From the seed to skin. All the days of his vow of his separation, no razor may be used on his head until the time is fulfilled, for which he separated himself to Yahweh. He will be holy, and he must let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to Yahweh, he must not contact a dead body, he must not defile himself, even for his father or mother or his brother or his sister, if they die. Because the separation for, this, his, for his God is on his head. All the days of his separation he must be holy like Yahweh. So this is the Nazarite vow. So remember, they lost the right to be able to be priest when they sinned with the golden calf. Now only the firstborn Levites get to be priests. But what God has done is he's also allowed a non-Levite to take a Levitical-like vow. Now, this vow will not allow this person to go into the tabernacle. It will not allow them to do sacrifices, but allow them to live up to the same standard of holiness that a Levite does, therefore have the same kind of encounter with God that a Levite does, and minister to people in the same way the Levite does. And so this is the vow. First, you must understand that this vow is equal to that of the high priest. Not an authority, or the ability to atone for sins, but in his level of holiness and righteousness. The same standard of righteousness that God has called the Levite to, the high priest, and the same things that he's not allowed to do, is the same standard as the Nazarite. So if I were to take a Nazarite vow, I would be up there in height with that of the holiness of a priest, or a high priest specifically. But what's different about this is, one, he doesn't get to go in the tabernacle. He doesn't get to make um, animal sacrifices. But it can be a man or a woman taking this vow. And so what God makes it very clear is, yes, only the men are allowed to be priests, because that's headship. That does not mean that a woman cannot have that level of holiness. She may not have the authority to atone for sins. Because remember, this is mostly about foreshadowing Christ but she may live up to the same level of holiness and relation with God and ministry to other people as a high priest through a Nazarite vow. And this gives woman an incredible sense of worth and value because that doesn't exist in any other culture. Even to this day, you'd be hard-pressed to find cultures like that. And America is only through um, the feminist movements, which is good and bad for different reasons. That's the the thing here. So what it does is, this is a vow that they would take for a temporary amount of time. So they would say, I swear that I'm going to live to this level of holiness and serve God and God only. So this would be like going on a mission trip or being a pastor or whatever. You're going to quit your normal life for whatever reason, and you're just going to dedicate yourself to God. And so you say, I'm going to be a Nazarite for two months. I'm going to be a Nazarite for a year. I'm going to be a Nazarite for five years. It's usually a determined amount of time. And that time, you're not allowed to drink anything that has associated with the vine or vinegar. So you're not allowed to drink vinegar. You're not allowed to put vinegar in any of your food. You're not allowed to drink wine. You're not allowed to drink grape juice. You're not allowed to eat grapes. You're not allowed to eat raisins. Nothing that's connected to alcohol in any kind of a way, fermented or unfermented. And the idea is that you're supposed to show that you're completely under the control of the Holy Spirit and there's nothing anywhere even close to controlling you, and so much so that you're not even going to touch things that could be fermented or drink them. And so that's communicating what is truly controlling you. Not that eating grapes is a sin. Not even even drinking wine is not a sin, very clear in the Bible. But just that you're trying to communicate the picture that I am only controlled by God. You're not allowed to touch any dead bodies, even your own relatives. See, remember the Israelites, they were allowed to touch dead bodies, but they were unclean and not allowed to go in the tabernacle for seven days. But for a Nazarite, they're not even allowed, not even for their mom, dad, brother, and sister. So if you make a five-month vow and mom dies in that time, you can stand way, way, way out there for the funeral, but you can't come in. Now, that doesn't seem too weird to us because we're used to... um, we're used to not, like, really getting really close to bodies and that kind of stuff. But remember, in the ancient world, it was the family who prepared the body. And the closer you were to the relative, the more responsible you had. And so the sense is you're not even, and that would be considered a great honor and a great privilege and, and a sacred right. But they're not allowed to even do that. And so they're not allowed, and they're not allowed to eat anything unclean. Now remember, once again, the Israelites are not allowed to eat anything unclean. But if they ate it, it didn't make them unclean in the sense that they were cast out. But for this, this breaks the vow. So what is the sign of the covenant? It's growing your hair out. The reason that God emphasizes head coverings with the the jealousy ordeal, it says that her head should be uncovered, and the Jews today wear yarmulkes, is because this head cover symbolically represents that the hand of God is on your head, and that your, your authority, which is your head, is under the authority of God, and your thinking is submitted under the thinking of God, and you're under the protection of God, and you're under the guidance of God. Grab my little daughter's head, and I steer her, okay? Because no, I don't know any other way to steer her when she's out of control, so <laughs> I just grab her head, and I just point her in the direction I want. And that's almost the like a picture they have of God. And so head coverings were about you acknowledging to everybody, I have submitted myself under the authority of God and the protection of God, and the guidance of God. So the reason they uncover her head during the judgment is she's no longer under the protection of God or the guidance, so she's guilty. The head covering doesn't come back until she's survived the ordeal. For the Nazarite, it's his hair. His hair is going to cover his head and get longer and longer and longer and the longer it gets, then the, more, the, the longer he's been under the direct holy providence of God, or she. And so this is the, the, the point of a, a Nazarite vow. Now, there's very few cases of anybody doing a Nazarite vow. When you get to um, Judges chapter 13, Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, she's not mentioned by name in the Bible for reasons that, just got to wait till Judges. She is not mentioned by name, but she is told by an angel of God that she is to be a Nazarite during her entire pregnancy. And then she's going to give birth to Samson, who will be a Nazarite for life. And then when Hannah comes along in chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel, she's going to go to God and she's going to dedicate her son as a Nazirite. And she's going to be a Nazirite during her pregnancy. And her son Samuel will be a Nazirite for his entire life. We think that John the baptizer was a Nazirite by the way that he functioned and acted and dressed and all that kind of stuff. And we know that Paul took a Nazirite vow during the book of Acts. Um, during a certain ministry because we don't have him taking the vow and we don't have him doing the vow, but Acts records him going to the tabernacle to finish his vow, to do the sacrifices and the cleansing that are necessary after your vow is done. And he seems to suggests that he did it in order to show that even though he was going to the Gentiles, he was still holy and still dedicated to God. These are the only examples of Nazarites that we have in the Bible. Um, Three temporary ones and two lifetime ones, which God doesn't even require a lifetime Nazarite vow here. And in understanding these rules are also very important for you to understand the story of Samson. Because Samson's a huge screw-up. Okay, and, and you need to understand what's involved and what the rules are, or you won't get how big of a screw-up he is as you're going through this story. If the Nazarite breaks his vow, touch a dead body, drink something or whatever, before his term is up, then he's required to shave his head and he has to go into the tabernacle and make the same sacrifices that the high priest has to make to make himself clean. And then he has to start all over because he promised God that he would do a certain amount of time. And he didn't finish it, so he has to start all over. It's like dying in a video game. You go all the way back. (laughs) <laughs> okay? So the reality is he has to start, or she has to start all over until they've finished it. Once he or she has finished the vow that they have determined the length of time, then they will go into the tabernacle and do cleansings and do animal sacrifices to mark the end of it, and they'll shave their head then. And so, but you have to remember these vows are very public. So, somebody's got their head shaved, you know whether they shaved it because they broke their vow or they finished their vow because everybody in the community knows about your vow. And remember, you're dedicating yourself to God, to serving Him and Him only during that time, which means it's very obvious that you're dedicated to God because you're not doing what everybody else is doing on a regular basis. So, everybody would know whether you're truly dedicated to God or not, or whether you broke the vow or whether you made the vow or that kind of stuff. And so, this is an extra level of holiness that you've put yourself up to in order to dedicate yourself 24-7 to God in some kind of ministry that you've decided you want to do. And that can be a whole gambit of things. So they go live in the the Levite area?
1: No. To the
0: tabernacle? They go to the tabernacle to take the vow but still or to finish the, the vow, but they go to their own community okay. or wherever they said, I'm going to fulfill this vow to God. Like, they didn't really do mission trips. <laughs> Um, because God told them to stay in their land. But if we did this today, it would be like, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow while I go to China for five months because I'm showing everybody I'm super dedicated to what God wants me to do. Or I'm going to work at the bridge downtown, and I'm just going to quit my job for two months and go down there. So that kind of stuff. Or or I'm just whatever. So, so only during that time. Then once it's over with, then you go to the tabernacle and do your ordeal. But you don't live in the tabernacle. Now Samuel did. Samuel actually lived in the tabernacle, not for life, but for his childhood. Now, this is important for you to understand because you've got Samson. And when Samson's on his way down to Timnah in Philistine territory, the second time he comes across the carcass of a lion which he had killed previously. And he reaches into the carcass and he eats what? Honey. Honey. He just became unclean and broke his vow. Did he shave his head? Did he go in the tabernacle and make sacrifices? No, he didn't care. Then later, when the Philistines come against him, after his own people tied him up and handed him over, but that's a whole other thing, he kills a 1,000 people with a what? A donkey's jawbone, a dead body. So he picks an unclean thing up, breaking his vow, when the Holy Spirit comes in on power and he uses an unclean thing under the influence of the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. And he doesn't shave his head afterwards, and he doesn't repent, and he doesn't do animal sacrifices. And if you don't understand that as a right vow, you don't realize he's so in trouble, okay? Because <laughs> he just keeps breaking his vow. And vow over and over again, and he never repents, he never shaves his head, he never does sacrifices, he doesn't do anything. And what makes it even worse is after he kills everybody, then afterwards he says, Okay, you give me victory, you're gonna let me die now and starve and thirst. And then God gives him a spring, and then he names the spring after himself. Samson's a horrible man. Okay, he's a horrible man. And so you need to understand these boring laws. To understand how bad Samson really is and how far away from God he really is as you're reading these stories. And so that's the Nazarite vow that God is allowing anybody to take but holds them to a higher standard. So was there any like implied judgment of God if these vows were broken? There is no sense of God saying I'll strike you down dead but there is you who will be under the judgment of God and you're considered unclean. And remember, if you're unclean now and you broke these vows, you have to do sacrifices. Um, And if you don't do the sacrifices, then you're not allowed in the camp. And the community is responsible for implementing that um, excommunication, so to speak. If I break my vow and I do these things and I don't repent, then I get kicked out. And that's the job of the community. And the community has the authority to do that by God invested them with that. But as I'm being kicked out, I might think, hey, I don't really want to be kicked out of the community, so I'll go ahead and repent and all that kind of stuff. That's the idea. That's even the point that Paul is trying to make in Corinthians, like kick them out of the church for their sin. And the hope is once they realize that they're outside the community and they desperately want to be a part of the community, that will make them want to repent. Um, and so they will come back in. If they don't come back in, then they're just out of the community forever. But if the entire community doesn't value the holiness of the community and doesn't kick those people out, then when we get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is going to make it clear that he's going to bring famine to the community. If they continue to not do this, then he'll bring plagues, and he'll bring oppression, and eventually exile. So the community is responsible for maintaining the cleanliness of the community, and if they don't as a community, then God brings judgments. What's fitting is there's a connection here, because now we go to chapter 6, and in chapter 6, we have the priestly Benedict. Now this might be familiar, because some of your churches especially more traditional churches will kind of say this at the end of their services. They can So now if we talked about, so notice how we're transitioning here. We've talked about the need to be faithful to your vows with a jealousy ordeal, which transitions us into a different kind of vow, which is almost like being a priest, which transitions us to the priestly benediction. So these things are all kind of being connected. By a certain idea or theme. So in chapter six, verse twenty two it says, And may Yahweh spoke to Moses and tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way that you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, Yahweh bless you and protect you. Yahweh make her his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, that you will put my, um, so they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Now this is very poetic. Now, the first thing you need to understand is that Yahweh's repeated three times in this benediction. Because the number three communicates redemption. And so this is God's redemption of making them a people. The other thing you need to notice is the structure is even set up to communicate parallels. So line one consists of 15 letters making three words. Line two consists of 20 words, making five words. And line three consists of 25 letters, making seven words. So notice that the letters are increasing, but the words are decreasing. And there's that parallel there. Yahweh's name is repeated three times. Grammatically, there is no need to repeat Yahweh's name, but the repetition emphasizes that Yahweh is a source of all of Israel's benefits, as does the last clause, I will bless them, where the I is emphatic if you subtract the name of Yahweh, there are 12 words left for the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so all these numbers are, the letters are increasing and the words are decreasing, so there's this nice little kind of chiastic structure at the same time that Yahweh's repeated three times, but if you subtract that, it's 12 tribes. And so the whole idea that this is trying to communicate is that God's blessing is totally complete and sufficient for His people. And that the other thing that you need to understand what's emphasized more than anything is the graciousness of God. Now what's really powerful about this is that the law and the covenant is about obedience, 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 obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. Yet the benediction that brings the covenant law to an end is an emphasis on the graciousness of God. And that his graciousness is complete and sufficient for all. For all 12 tribes. And that's really important to understand. That brings us to the dedication of the tabernacle. Chapters 7 and chapter 8 and 9 and 10 are the dedication of the tabernacle. I'm not going to go through this in detail because I spent a long time in Leviticus talking about how to dedicate a tabernacle. So basically what God does is they actually do now what God had commanded them to do earlier. I'll just read a couple quotes. This is from Ronald B. Allen. He said, The chapter of chapter 7 stands out as a monument to the pleasure of God who took enjoyment from repetition. For these were grand gifts in the good days of his early relationship with his people, and these were the honeymoon days of a marital relationship of the Lord in Israel. Each of the gifts is relished as presentations by a lover in the early days of the bliss of marriage. So one of the things they're dedicating the tabernacle is each family, each tribe is bringing their gifts to God, and God is listing out all the gifts. OK? In some ways, it's kind of boring. <laughs> okay, they list all the gifts off. And so But the point is that this is a groom who is bride is now standing before him clean, and gifts are being brought to him, and he's taking pleasure that these are free will-loving gifts offered by the people of their own choice he's required the tabernacle to be dedicated but he has not required the gifts that they have to give so the abundance the overflow of the gifts shows that their heart loves him and that's what he relishes in so what we see as boring meaningless repetition yahweh sees as a love letter being written to him so to speak does that make sense like so one person might go to a baby shower and think this is really boring just to watch all these gifts being open. The person of the baby shower might think um, gain great pleasure reading over all the things that they got again because they felt very loved that a lot of people showed up to give this to them. And so it's a matter of perspective. In chapter 8 is the consecration of the priests done according to Exodus and Leviticus. Um, Philip J. Budd says this, The distinctive emphasis of this section is that the Levites are nevertheless not remote from the community. Through the laying on of hands, they, in some sense, represent the people at large and constitute an offering from the people. Unlike the priests, they do not receive anointing or special vestments, but like laymen, they wash their clothes for special rites. They are perhaps something of a bridge between the priests and the people. So when they finally dedicated the priests, all the people came forward and they laid, they washed their clothes, they got in their Sunday best or their Saturday best, and they presented themselves before the priests, and as they swore the priests in to serve them, they lay their hands on them. The significance of it is this that the whole community is invested in this. And and if you've never been a part, if you've ever been part of laying on hands with somebody and praying for them, there's something very powerful, very communal very um, connective uh, in that kind of a sense. And so this is the entire community. And this is a big community. This is a huge laying on of hands. Okay? That's important to understand. Chapter 10 is the horns are described here. And so the horns would be blown. Every time they see the, the Shekinah glory of God lifting up, that means it's time for the Namu, And they would blow the horns so that everybody would pay attention. These horns are not the ram's horn. These are actually silver long trumpets. So it'd be distinct because the ram's horns are a sign of the festivals of God or God going to battle. Where well, this is more the announcement of a great king about ready to lead them into um, along the, the the land. So John Salheimer, who is an incredible scholar when it comes to understanding narrative and how it works, says the impression that this narrative intends to give is that of an orderly and obedient departure from Sinai. The picture is a far cry from the scene which Moses saw when he first returned from the mountain and found the nation celebrating before the golden calf. The people were running wild, and Aaron was, had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. In other words, the author is trying to make the point with this narrative. He shows that after the incident of the golden calf, the Mosaic law was able to bring order and obedience to the nation. The law necessitated by the disobedience of the people was having an effect on them. And so basically the point here is that the trumpets are blown, the Shekinah glory lifts up, the camp organizes and very orderly marches and follows God. And what he's saying is where God began with order of the creation of the world, and Adam and Eve sin screw that up, once again, at Mount Sinai, God gave them a law that brought order, and they screwed up with their running around and being wild and chanting, worshiping and sacrificing, and everything is out of control. And then when God judged them and brought the law back and rededicated them, the ideas of the law did bring them back into order. And, but not just an order of like whipping the whip and getting them in line. An orderly people who also brought free will gifts to the tabernacle of their heart. And love. And so that's the picture is being painted here. You need to understand what God ends this section, this section is ending in the sense that these wild, disobedient, ungodly people who are worshiping other gods, in a matter of months, have now become orderly, obedient people under the law who are willingly, out of the love of their heart, giving gifts to their king. And they're ready to go off and march in his service. But that's the end of it. Because then they're going to go right back into sin. Kind of like you and I. (laughs) You You get your act together, everything is right, and then life happens. Does that make sense? Any questions? And once again, like I said, that's all detailed out in Leviticus and Exodus. So if you really want to go into the details of a dedication of a priest, I talked about that thoroughly back then.